0: Our podcast has been rated in the top one half percent of all podcasts in the world by listennotes.com. So you know your message will be heard. Now, here is your host with today's interview, Pastor Bob Thibodeau.
1: Hello, everyone, everywhere. Pastor Robert Thibodeau here. Welcome to the Kingdom Crossroads podcast today. We're so blessed that you're joining us. You know, many people experience health issues and, for some, massive life-changing surgeries. Many others are there as loved ones go through these ordeals as well. Very few have to deal with both situations simultaneously. And then, to add grief onto sorrow as well, lose their spouse while trying to recover from their own health issues. But that is what happened to our guest today. Kim Sorrell was diagnosed with breast cancer and was facing down the double mastectomy and the recovery and all of the emotions that revolve around that but then had to face, just six weeks later, her husband being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and then losing him to that cancer. Kim is also the executive director of a nonprofit organization, speaker, writer, author of a great book, Love Is, A Year-Long Experiment, and Living Out 1 Corinthians 13 Love. Kim has been a guest on numerous television and radio broadcasts as well, as being interviewed and published in numerous newspapers, magazines, She's the author of two books, one, Love Is, and is based upon her desire to to live an entire year, according to 1 Corinthians 13, 4-8, known as the Love Chapter in the Bible. Her previous book is titled Cry Until You Laugh, and is based upon her journal she was keeping at the time that she was going through everything that she did, and was written in a way to, to help others deal with their grief. But help me welcome to the program. Kim Sorrell. Kim, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us today. I do appreciate it so much.
2: Robert, I am thrilled to be here. So thank you so much for having me.
1: Amen. Now, first question, other than that brief information I just shared, can you tell us in your own words, who is Kim Sorrell?
2: Well, mostly I'm a grandma these days, I think. Oh, praise God. (laughs) I know. It's the greatest thing ever. You know, before I had my first baby, people would say, oh, just wait, just wait. And I'm thinking, I already love the baby. And then your baby's born and you're like, did my mom love me like this? <laughs> and then then grandparents, same thing. Oh, just wait, just wait. And then when I became a grandparent, I'm thinking, Oh, I know I've had kids. I know. And then the first one's born and I'm like, Oh my word. It was having a baby times 10. There is nothing like yeah. it. So that is uh, my favorite job right now Damn is man. being a grandparent, uh, and a mother and uh, an author. And I, work hard and play hard and enjoy life.
1: Amen. Amen. I can relate to that grandparent issue so well. I always tell people if I knew grandkids were this great, I'd have had them first. But, uh, you know, <laughs> but, you know, I
2: tell people it's the reason you don't kill your
1: kids. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I, what a funny story. You know, my grandkids, some people say I spoil them. I mean, they're all grown now. They're 25, 22. But, but funny story, it, I used to teach them from the moment they could understand, you know, wah, wah, blah blah, all this stuff, was you're not spoiled. You are blessed. Papa's blessing you. Yeah, you know, <laughs> blessing you abundantly, exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all you can ask or think. But you're blessed, <laughs> not spoiled. And we went to the grocery store one day, and I had them both riding in the basket. You know how you do. Christopher was like four and Zoe was two and uh, got up to the checkout line. And I said, you guys want some candy and put candy down. The cashier says, does your grandpa spoil you? And I wish I had it on video because both heads simultaneously swung around and said, we're not spoiled. We're blessed in stereo. I was like, yes, they got it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I wish we had that on video
1: too. That is it was, it was like, I mean, you couldn't have, a cartoon couldn't have done it as well, because both just simultaneously and in stereo, like, we're not spoiled, we're blessed. You know? <laughs> anyway, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Uh, now, your book, Love is a Year-Long Experiment in Living Out 1 Corinthians 13 Love, it was published in December 2021, so why did you feel it was important to publish your book at this time?
2: Well, I mean, the timing worked out, I think, fabulously, like the I decided to take a year because losing my husband after getting diagnosed with cancer and right away him being diagnosed with cancer and going through all of that at the same time and then losing him the love of my life, the man that I was supposed to be in a rocker with in our 90s drinking lemonade on the front porch. Right. And at 47 years old, they have my world turned upside down. I just questioned love. I questioned love. And and I thought, gosh, you know, people have tried to live a year like Jesus, right? And uh, that uh that's what a thing to do. I mean, it would <laughs> change imagine. your life, right? If you lived a year like Jesus, but Jesus is different to different people. Yeah. You know, to some, he is just someone to be feared, you know, basically, or somebody's a prophet to somebody's a heretic to somebody's the angry guy tipping over tables into some he's peace and light and joy and yeah. God and all things wonderful. And so living like Jesus could be different for different people. But in John, it says that God is love, not that God loves, but God right. is love.
1: Right.
2: So in learning about love, I decided, first of all, it's something that you can be. So how do you be love? How do you become love? How How do you be like God, like he wants us to be. And so I decided to take this year and really go after it. And I used 1 Corinthians 13. I used that beautiful poem, love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, does not buzz, et cetera. Took it one word at a time, deciding I would do it one word a month and figure out what is love that is patient? What is love that is kind? And the majority of the time I was working on it, I was in Haiti and mm. so I started chapter with with what I think it's going to be. Like we all know what patience is, you know, you're not honking your horn when you're stuck in traffic, right? But <laughs> what is love that is patient? And uh it was much harder than I thought it was going to be to figure mm. it out. It took me the whole month, but every word when you put love is or love is not in front of it, it changes the meaning of the word. Yeah. So I decided this mystery called love that is, you know, songs i written about and poems and movies and everything else. What What is it really that I would work to figure it out?
1: Amen. And before you started your journey on to study love, uh, what did you think love really meant?
2: Well, I thought it was this squishy feeling inside this, uh, Happiness that came into your heart when you saw the person that you love or the people that you love, that uh, loving people was different than loving black licorice. But uh, we use the word love (laughs) for a lot of things, but I I just thought it was this emotion uh, that you had uh, for people that you love.
1: Yeah. Amen. And, and you said a lot of this book was set in Haiti, and your organization supports work in Haiti, Raise Raising Hope International. Tell us about your organization before we get into that.
2: Yeah, so we're a partnering organization. We work with people in their own country who have a passion, a mission, a vision to do something to help people in their own country and just need someone to walk alongside. Mm-hmm. So they understand the language, they understand the culture, and they understand the real need. And so mostly medical clinics and uh, schools, but we do work with some orphanages as well and some small business projects. And depending on the need, their need, uh, we fill in the gap. So sometimes that's raising some money. Sometimes that's building a building. Sometimes that's getting supplies that aren't available in the country over to them to be able to operate. And always with the idea of self-sustainability a plan for self-sustainability. So they're not always chasing dollars. They can actually do the work that that God has directed them to do.
1: Amen. Amen. Haiti has had such a a tumultuous season that they've been going through these past dozen years. I mean, you know, the assassination of their president and before that it was baby doc and, and all that stuff. And I mean, it's, it's really a tragic, tragic situation down there. Uh, you have a great story about in your book about taking a group of men to Haiti to check out a ministry opportunity. Can you share with us, not just a story, but what aspect of love you were working through
2: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Your lighting just changed.
1: Yes. I don't know why.
2: (laughs) Ah, Maybe, you know, (laughs) the Lord Lord has come upon you. Uh, So, yes, I was working on love does not keep a record of wrongs. And Robert, I was kind of dreading that one because I thought, well, you forgive, but you never forget. You don't forget the things that happen to you. So how do you not keep a record of wrongs? What does that mean exactly? And and so during that month that I was working on and looking for it and trying to figure it out, I was asked by a gentleman to accompany him and some other men to Haiti to visit a water project that I had been working on in Haiti and show it to them to see if it's something they wanted to get involved with. So the eight men and I, and then two of my Haitian friends went to translate for us and they'd been working on the project. We went out into the countryside. Their church had arranged for a place for us to stay. And so we get there and it's behind a cement wall, like a lot of places in Haiti and very small building with just two rooms. And there are four twin size beds in each room. So eight American men, two Haitian men and me and eight twin size beds. So the head guy of the American men calls me and says, Kim, Kim, can I talk to you? I'm like, sure. And he said, did you see the rooms? And I'm thinking, buddy, there is nothing else to see here. This is just a little place. And then he went, oh, he's thinking I'm going to want my own room. So I'm going to say, well, that's okay. I'll sleep outside. And then he'll say, oh, no, no. If anyone should sleep inside, it should be you. And I'll say, well, I don't care if there's other people in my room. And he'll say, oh, good, because there's only so many beds. So I thought it would be that simple. So I said, well, it's okay. I'll sleep outside. And he said, oh, good, good. Because there are men in the group that would not feel comfortable with a woman in their room, I'm thinking, "Holy cow! Now what am I going to do? You're say I'm going <laughs> to sleep outside? Am I going to sleep in the truck? You know what am I going to do?" But I saw this piece of plywood that was held up by two, you know, like workhorses, wooden pieces, and I thought, "Well, if I put the air mattress we brought underneath that, at least if it rained, I'd be okay." And my biggest fear was that something would land on me, crawl on me, dismember me somehow in the middle of the night. You know, that was my fear. And so the first night I go to bed and I'm praying, Lord, please, please protect me, protect me. And uh, it's so loud. I blow up the air mattress but it's so loud. Dogs are barking and horns are honking. And my air mattress lost all air within the first hour. So I'm sleeping on gravel. And finally, the noise dies down maybe 1am or so. Then about 2am, voodoo drums start in the distance. And those are going, 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 going for a couple hours. Then probably, you know, four o'clock or so, things die down. I'm able to finally drift off to sleep. So the first night comes and goes and there's no problem whatsoever. Second night, same thing. My air mattress loses its air. There's the dogs and the horns and then the Buddha drums. Finally, I'm sleeping and I'm sleeping on my back because I thought, well, if I have to get up and run, that might be the easiest position to be in. So I'm sleeping. And then I woke up because there was something on my leg. And I was so afraid. I thought, what could it possibly be? Does Haiti have the anti-venom? Can they airlift me to Miami before I lose a leg? What is going to happen? I don't even know. And so I slowly lifted my head and I slowly opened my eyes and it was a chicken. There was a dang chicken on my leg. And I didn't know whether to be mad because it woke me up or happy that it wasn't a tarantula or a snake or a chupacabra <laughs> or whatever is lurking in 80. And so I shoot it away and whatever. The third night came and went. Nothing happened. Fourth night. I'm in bed again. The horns, the dogs, et cetera, the voodoo drums. And again, I'm asleep. And again, I get woken up because there's something on my leg. And again, I am scared to death to look and praying, please don't let it be, don't let it be. Things that I fear. And so again, I slowly lift my head and slowly open my eyes. And again, it was the chicken. (laughs) And so again, I didn't know whether to be mad or happy that uh, it was the chicken. But that night, Robert, we had chicken for dinner. So my fifth night was completely without incident. I had no problems whatsoever. And so during that time, I thought, gosh, these guys, they're making me sleep outside. I'm getting no rest whatsoever. You know, I'm afraid of something crawling on me, anything could happen to me. They don't seem to care. You know, none of them step up and say, You should sleep inside. And I'm thinking, I hope my sons wouldn't treat a woman like that. I'm all about quality, I'm all about working hard and everything else, but I still am a woman. There's still a difference between men and women. And so I just, you know, was kind of dumbfounded and saying, Lord, what the heck, you know, I I don't get it. And then it finally dawned on me that love does not keep record of wrongs and what that means that I, I'll never forget that story. I'll never forget that time, but literally the story has changed in my mind. So love that doesn't keep record of wrongs doesn't look at that as, oh, my gosh, I'm so bitter toward these men and the way they treated me and they made me sleep outside. Yeah. Instead, the narrative changes. And now to me, it's just this funny thing that happened to me. And literally, I could sleep anywhere in the world and be just fine. And so the tone of the story changes and all bitterness and anger goes away because we know bitterness only hurts us anyway. But love that doesn't keep record of wrongs just changes the tone of the story, changes the
1: narrative. Amen. 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 And and the story in your book, I think it's the first story in your book deals with patience that you already mentioned Uh, It's titled love is patient and details about a cargo shipment of supplies that your organization had shipped to Haiti. Can you share a bit of that event and what you learned about love is patient? Oh my word. That
2: was such a crazy day. We would ship in 40 foot seatainers, so bigger than the back of a semi truck, uh, full of stuff into Haiti, supplies that were not available in Haiti for medical clinics and, and schools and wherever. And so uh, Patrick was our guy in Haiti, great friend of mine and Haitian. And so he was supposed to pick me up late he was always late because there's there's time and there's Haitian time and so then he finally picks me up and we have this container and we're calling everybody who has stuff on the container to come and get it and then we get there and we're unloading and I'm seeing that the names don't match the names of the people we just called to come and get their stuff the names on the boxes aren't the same and then I look at the container and realize it's a whole different container mm. than the people we called. So then we have to quick call the people that we called and tell them, tell them not to come and then call a whole bunch of other people and tell them to come. And it was just thing after thing after thing that day. And at one point in time, Patrick just disappeared and I'm like, where is he? You know, we've got these guys unloading and he's just gone and we've got people coming. And I'm I'm weird. What happened to Patrick? And there was just thing after thing that day that it's like nothing went right. There was nothing about it that was professional, that was organized. That was the way we were supposed to do things, <laughs> so it was just frustrating. And I'm looking for patience, love that is patient, and and I'm looking for it and looking for it. And it's the end of the month, and I'm like, Lord, I have no patience, so I cannot do this. Like there must, <laughs> there is no love in patience. I I have none, and I don't want to pray for it because I'm perver- I'm kind of afraid you might give it to me. So I realized though. The all day long, Patrick, who was trying my patience, who was driving me crazy through the entire process, was actually showing me love that is patient. And then I realized what love that is patient is. So it's not being patient, like not honking your horn when you're stuck in traffic or not stomping your foot because you're ready to go. They're not ready to go. You know, that's just patience. That's just plain patience. But love that is patience. And first of all, Robert, I, I believe you're supposed to love everybody, right? I mean, we're directed to love everybody. Right. So you love whoever you're with in a love that is patient way, recognizing that this moment right here, right now, this is the most important moment of your life. What's in the past is in the past. And what's in the future is yet to come. And for me, this is something I've had to practice and practice to truly be in the moment. Because it was so easy for me to think that I was the greatest multitasker ever and be talking to somebody while I'm thinking about a meeting I have later and my grocery list for on the way home and something that happened yesterday. And also listen to every word the person in front of me is saying. I found out it's not true. I'm not that person. I can't do that. And so instead now I'm fully engaged, fully engaged. And I I discovered that when you are, when you're really there, first of all, people know it, that you're really there. That's love. They know that you're there. And then you actually hear their words without thinking about your rebuttal or assuming what they're saying. Mm -hmm. You actually hear their words. And it changes everything. Like they might have some insight to something that, that you don't know, Mm -hmm. or, you know, they might have a good reason why they think the way they think that you Mm -hmm. had no idea that that's what it was or something they need you to pray for or whatever it happens to be, but to take that moment, that moment is going to come and go with or without you. And so be there, be there in the moment.
1: Praise God. Amen. You know, the, the vice president of our ministry, Pastor Michael, uh, he's had a mission outreach, gosh, 25 years or more in, in Haiti uh, called Real Hope for Haiti. It's basically, he runs a Christian school and an orphanage. And one of the things that he tells us about are, are the gangs that basically will halt traffic and charge for passage uh, from one town to the next. Have you experienced in your trips to Haiti? Have you? experience anything like that as well
2: oh sure oh yeah. sure you know before it was the gangs it was police officers
1: oh, i mean really? <laughs> they're yeah
2: yeah doing doing check checks you know along the way making sure your equipment works and whatever and quite often you just have to give them some goods and and then you're on your way and uh i can't say as i blame them because police officers are not well paid mm. and they're risking their lives and that's kind of how they make their money i mean every society works a little different. Every country works a little different. And so I don't look at it as a a bribe or a rite of passage. Somehow I look at it as a tip for keeping us safe, you know, whatever. But with the gangs, that's a different story (laughs) because they're just about the money. But at the same time, poverty is so thick in Haiti and opportunity is so thin that everybody needs money. People need money to survive. And the way they're going about it with the kidnappings and the stopping traffic and you have to pay everybody and you have to you know, pay the gangs to let you through. I don't believe that that's right at all. You know, there's there's nothing good about that. But I understand the desperation at the same time. Yeah.
1: Amen. Amen. How is the pandemic and all of that affect not just your organization efforts, but those in Haiti that depend on this support as well?
2: Well, it's changed things dramatically because it's been very difficult to even go to Haiti. Like right now, I, I haven't been in a couple of years because things have been so bad. So even before the assassination of the president, there was so much civil unrest and so much going on that that as a woman with light skin, I just feel like anybody that I'm with in Haiti, I'm putting in danger. So it's one thing to put my own life in danger. It's another thing to put other people's lives in danger. So we've been doing everything that we can from our office in Michigan. And and we can do a lot. There's a lot that we can do. Uh, So, you know, there was just another earthquake in August, August 14th of last year. And so we're able to get supplies over. We do a lot of work in Dominican Republic. And so uh, the people that we have in the Dominican Republic have been able to bring supplies that you can't get in Haiti over to the victims of the, of the earthquake. And so, so we've been able to do um, a lot of things, but because of everything going on, there used to be so many people that were going to help in Haiti and now so few people that are going to help in Haiti. And when the people were coming whether you believe in the kind of work they're doing or you don't believe in the kind of work they're doing whatever it created jobs it yeah. created jobs for Haitians for translating for transportation for housing for food it created jobs and now with people not going those jobs don't exist anymore yeah and there was so little opportunity before and now there's even littler opportunity that's
1: true yeah a lot of people don't think about that but you know just a trip over there, you know, you got the taxi driver and the, you know, your translator and, you know, the hotel people, And you know, even though when our mission trips went over there, they stayed like in a little American compound. Uh, I can't remember the name of it right now, but, but yeah, they, yeah. You don't think about all the, the residuals that go into that. That's true. Yeah. And these yeah. families depend on that.
2: Amen. Right. Amen. So many families do yeah. for Amen.
1: sure. Hey folks, Pastor Bob here. We are all out of time for today's portion of this great interview with Kim Sorrell, author of the book, Love Is, a year-long experiment in living out 1 Corinthians love. Now, we've been talking about how she was doing this while living down in Haiti, dealing with the aftermath of the huge earthquake a few years back. Now, most people may try to walk in the love of God, but very few people actually commit to doing it for maybe 30 days let alone an entire year. Amen? I pray you're getting a lot out of this episode because I know I am, and I pray you're being challenged with your faith to walk more in the love of God. Amen. Now, be sure to order Kim's book, Love is a Year-Long Experiment in Living Out First Corinthians Love. Just drop down on the show notes, click the link right there, and be sure to come back for the next episode as we conclude this great interview with Kim Sorrell. Amen? Till then, this is Pastor Bob reminding you, be blessed in all that you do.